This is Body Talk, where we explore your inner universe. Welcome to Body Talk. I'm your host, David Lissondek from the Center for Integrative Medicine at UPMC. And today I am very happy to have as my guest, uh, the author and innovator of a system of interconnected anatomy known as the anatomy trains. We've been saying forever, uh, it's almost a cliche that it's all connected, but Tom Myers was one of the first people to map those connections and put them out in a coherent way that all manner of therapists and movement specialists could follow and build from, learn from, and add on to. Tom, welcome to the show. Oh, David, it's a pleasure. Thanks. So, 20 years ago, you were just publishing this book. I think I met you a few years later. It was on its second printing at that point. And here we are 20 years later, four editions. What does that feel like? Uh, I'm going to stretch your timeline back the 12 years that I was developing it since a fellow named Jim Oshman, whom you ought to have on this talk too, uh, who wrote Energy Medicine, handed me an article by Raymond Dart. And uh, Raymond Dart was the guy who was responsible for the caveman image, the kind of Neanderthal with a club bringing home food for a woman, uh, that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. Uh, And he formulated, he was an anthropologist who formulated that out of what he found on the South African uh, digs, archaeological digs. But um, the... He was also a student of the Alexander Technique, uh, which was uh, a body method that was very popular well before any of the things that you and I know about were popular. Anyway, he wrote the double spiral arrangement of muscles in man, a little monograph, as that was back in the time when people wrote monographs. And it traced... Now, the, now they write blog posts. Yeah, now they write blog posts, exactly. And... Uh, this blog post was about the connection between the rhomboids of the serratus anterior and the obliques that formed a kind of serape um, around the torso. And, and uh, I read that article and my, in my eagerness to try to understand Eideroff's thing that the fascia is working as a whole, I just started, and also to teach my students some kind of connected anatomy, because I was teaching at the time, Uh, teaching anatomy and and so I said well get on the train and go this way and that way and that uh, so before the book was published um, or the original article was published in 98 um, and the book was published in 2001 I'd been working on it for 12 years before that and finally uh, got it down enough to put it down to the book um, so 20 so years later, how does it feel? Years. It feels wonderful. <laughs> Good. Uh, I, uh, we're really um, looking at a Copernican revolution in our understanding of movement anatomy in particular, but also the relationship of neuroanatomy to the gut, to the rest of the body moving, you know, the back and forth between the sympathetic and parasympathetic uh, and new theories of that, like the polyvagal theory, uh, James Nestor's attention to breath and how we can gain a little sovereignty over ourselves uh, through that. These are all um, pointing toward a a revolution in our understanding of anatomy. And I think the fascial system is um, 
Robert Schleip has called it the, the Cinderella of body tissues, and that uh, is central to our understanding of the context of all body physiology. Well, and I think finally, the medical science and the medical fields are getting to a position where they're willing to listen because we have reached what we can do with pharmaceutical interventions. We have reached the limits of, of what can be done with surgical interventions. And I'm not saying innovations in those fields are completely done and over with. In fact, they're refining these procedures and making them even better uh, than ever. But there are so many more cases that don't respond to those two treatments. And I think your book was not just a game changer 20 years ago, but it continues to, to elevate the level of conversation because that's the other thing that needs to happen is we need to move out of the woo um, and, and into being able to have as practitioners in whatever our craft or art is uh, informed conversations about what we're doing. And we need to be able to understand and speak the dialect. I was in body work when it was so unknown and marginalized, but and also so, so luxurious, it's expensive, um, that only upper middle class neurotics could come and do it. So we, <laughs> you're saying that the medical system has reached the end of what material medicine can do with surgery and drugs. Um, and I'm saying that a lot of body work has reached the end of what it can do for uh, the upper middle class of <laughs> rich Western societies. Uh, and that it needs, this is why I just love your book, uh, mm -hmm. it needs to move out into the institutions, not just the medical ones, but the educational ones. Uh, because we've entered, and I know this is somewhere we will go during this, this talk, mm -hmm. but we've entered a period of history unknown previously. And part of our response to that has to be, what is it like to be in a body? What is the minimum dosage of movement that that body needs to stay healthy? What are the experiences that that body needs to grow and mature in a way that we would like them to be good citizens and, and contributors uh, to the world? And that has to be completely rethought in terms of the modern electronic industrial era and it hasn't really been rethought since World War One. No, but I think I think the pandemic is goosing it forward more faster. At least I hope it is. May um, I just say how nice it is to talk to you? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I'm. Uh, people can't see me, but I'm in my library in Maine. It's a very cold morning um, in late winter. I haven't spent a whole winter in Maine for the 20 years since the book Ever. because because uh well i've spent parts of every every winter here it's not like i don't know the winter but i this year i've been um like a character in some swedish novel you know, <laughs> marooned, marooned on my brown and gray farm in maine once and, again and, uh, the morning is bleak and mr Myers <laughs> goes back inside with his tea to wait for the next day <laughs> i remember being in oslo in the winter time because that's the only time you can do a course in in norway is in the winter because in the summertime everybody's out right it's mm -hmm. the same as, as maine um and waiting for them to call me in 
Uh, I got it to breakfast about 7.30 and they called me in about 10 to 9 and the sky had not changed from 7.30 to 10 to 9. There was just a little orange glow where the sun will be sometime. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gets, uh, anyway. Yeah, like, wait, like waiting weather. for Godot, but with the sun. But this, you, you, you we, we started this with, uh, yes, the pandemic has accelerated a whole bunch of trends, both good and bad. There are many more sports injuries that have happened because people trying to do these things at home. There are um, kids who've been plopped down in front of a screen on a beanbag chair for hours and hours and hours. Um, and I think that's, so the, the pandemic has kind of, accelerated our realization of the need for contact and thus a social contract. Um, it's, it's been really interesting to see something like a mask politicized so that um, it becomes about our social contract of how much, how we care for each other and how much we care for each other and uh, that kind of thing. We're uh, well above the Dunbar number. Do you know what the Dunbar number is? No, it's the Dunbar no. number. I didn't either. Um, I've always said, because another part of our talk needs to be going back to paleo, which is when our bodies developed was in that Neolithic and Paleolithic era, mm -hmm. where, where we developed the modern body that we've now plunked down in the middle of an industrial landscape. Um, but those... Uh, Oh, I lost my thread. Where was I going? That's okay. Um, you, we were talking about kids being plunked in front of beanbag chairs and yeah. the, the, you know, the kind of the, the acceleration of more digital culture. And you were going, you were somehow going to link that back to our evolutionary paleo body. So I don't know about the paleo diet and I don't know about the paleo movement, uh, movement, but seeks, but I absolutely go with the premise, which is what, was happening in the Paleolithic era because that's the era in which our body developed. So um, do we need to eat the foods that we ate then? Maybe or maybe not, that we've changed a great deal since the Paleolithic era. There's been a lot of evolutionary change in humans. We have socialized in a way we couldn't then. Um, because then if you're a hunter-gatherer a culture, about 25 to 30 people can live together. When you get up over 40 people, historical records show that the tribe will split into two and somebody will you know, take a group off to find better pastures or worse pastures, or, uh, but just some other place because they can't all support each other. So you get above the number of relationships that somebody can handle. And I'm told the Dunbar number, it's a varied number that uh, people have, but you can handle about 150 to 250 relationships. But now we're in, we're trying to run a country in the case of we're, we're both Americans, but across the world, this is true. We're um, trying to run a country of millions and millions. So what is the social contract feel yeah. like? Uh, well, uh, uh, the uh, pandemic uh, has definitely accelerated that. And then you you factor in the social media where people are trying to have thousands and thousands of connections and relationships, which is equally unsustainable in a different way. And I don't know that we're neurologically wired to handle that. And we certainly see the fallout uh, in the younger people who have grown up with that and accept it is normal. Mm, I am actually quite 
hopeful about that. I think we are seeing temporary um, adjustments, but that the human organism will adjust properly to having its extension out into the nervous system we call the internet through whatever tools, your glasses, your watch, your phone, mm -hmm. it's in it's in your mastoid process, you know, <laughs> paranoid fantasies or whatever of-, of Yeah, well, um, the paranoid process is actually just two centimeters over from the mastoid process. I mean, everybody knows that. <laughs> yes, well, um, I, I am neither a conspiracy theorist nor am I a, a Pollyanna-ish utopian, but mm -hmm. uh, what I've seen, over my 70 years is that humanity muddles through somehow. And I think the what I know of the children that I know and, and hang out with, they're adapting to this, but it's still, I mean, the fact that it's in a phone, the fact that it it's not an integrated nervous system yet, we're just kind of like right now, we're having to mm -hmm. go through this thin little slit of uh, Zoom call and in order to to contact each other and uh, I think the internet is going to learn about us very very quickly in in terms of AI and I hope it likes to keep us around um, <laughs> but you are useful if it for does, or if we prevail over it or um, whether we become pets or or we become masters of the universe we are going to have to deal with the fact that we have a body and in no period of history, not the Paleolithic, Neolithic, Paleolithic, uh, or the agricultural, or even the industrial era, although we're coming steadily down as I go through those eras, mm -hmm. didn't require us to move. So much walking was required right up through World War I and toward World War II. And it's only after World War II that America got in a car, and the world got in a car shortly afterwards, and everything started to happen in a seated position, flying and working and driving mm -hmm. and sitting around the home. Chairs were, I, I don't want to go off on a polemic on chairs, but chairs were unknown in the society. But how much time do we spend teaching our children how to work with a chair? I'm sitting in a chair now. I'm going to be sitting in a chair here because I have another thing after you. Yeah, I, I do a lot of yeah. sitting 101. I do a lot of sitting 101 with people. With with your clients, yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's it's funny. Before I was uh, affiliated with UPMC, I used to have a practice in a small town seven or eight miles downriver from Pittsburgh. And there was always in the town complaints about parking. There was never enough parking. And the uh, my friend, who was also... Uh, big in the Chamber of Commerce used to say, we don't have a parking problem in this town. We have a walking, a walking problem. problem because shopping is now a team sport. So being able to park <laughs> in front of the store you want is good field position. Uh -huh. If you can't get that, there's a problem. And uh -huh. he was not wrong about that. Well, we, ha we have a culture of convenience and mm -hmm. that convenience has, for the first time in history, lowered the demand for movement uh, below that which is necessary to maintain health. And President Kennedy had the President's Council on Physical yes. Fitness, and probably every president since has had it. That's the first time I remember coming in contact with it. And it was the attempt to get everybody up and physical. But um, that was in the 50s. We're now in 2020. This is an internet culture. I'm getting my yoga classes off the internet. And so everybody's getting... <laughs> I have a friend uh, in New York who teaches Tai Chi who had three 
students to five students if she was lucky uh, and now has 80 online. Um, wow. So there are, this is a kind of wild west of learning about online learning and what, what it can do. You and I have both been learning about that over this past year. And that's, <laughs> Quite a bit. that's, that's Quite going a bit. to be with us. That's going to be with us forever. Uh, maybe not in the same form once, once the trains start moving again, but um, mm -hmm. So yeah. we, I, we have to learn with our kids uh, how to handle this internet thing in a, in a way that doesn't damage their health, their eye health, their physiological health, and their uh, neuromuscular health. Do you see any evidence of how it is being damaged or how it's being adapted to in healthy ways? Or if not, what would you like to see? Oh, yes. I, I'm in touch with a school in New York. Um, that is doing very good work on, it's a small Waldorf school for the kids of upper middle-class neurotics. But again, these are how <laughs> these, but that, but I swear to God, these are how these projects are incubated. Well, yeah, they have to start somewhere. I thank all my clients over the years, no matter how trivial the stuff that I was dealing with with them was, because that financed the work that I hope will result if, if you have medical listeners now and you think how many of the problems that come into your office would have been solved if that person as a child had had an effective user's guide to the human body course, uh, not just physical fitness, but sexual fitness and psychological fitness that had been, this is, this is your body. This is how you can, mm -hmm work with it and just bring a team to, you know, it's a presidential commission, get a team together, get the best educational stuff that you can get. But think about it in terms of kinesthetic intelligence instead of IQ, which we're used to measuring, and EQ, which emotional intelligence, which is um, yeah, so what, important. And, and what do you feel, IQ. what do you feel and where do you feel it as opposed to what do you think about what you feel, which are two <laughs> different things. And I see that all the time. I see that all the time when I'm working with people. I want to know what they're feeling. And there's that moment of, well, what am I supposed to feel? What's the right answer? And the, mm -hmm. the right answer is the one you give me. It's up to me to be the interpreter of that and modify my intervention to help it make more sense to you in a, in a level that we don't really have an articulate vocabulary for. The trouble with the culture of convenience is, is that you don't get a chance to know what you really want. Because as the old Ooh. saying goes, you can never get enough of what you don't really need. Yes. Mm -hmm. So so having been sold, and again, having grown up in the 1950s, uh, I was not subject to that barrage of advertising um, until my college years, say. And so to see the, I cannot, look up an article in the New York Times, I can't do anything without getting a barrage of messages that I'm not good enough as I am, that I should be da -da 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 mostly tuned now uh, <laughs> because because the neuron, you know, what wires together fires, what fires together wires together. I'm getting all kinds of ads for five-toed shoes because I bought some running shoes. And so the they know that. <laughs> it knows that. I don't think it's a they that knows that. I don't I, my motivations are transparent. I don't have much to hide, but uh, the still the the synchronicity with with which we are rapidly becoming part of 
the experience is becoming part of us and we are becoming part of the experience. So you don't need a chip in your brain. There, there, there are already algorithms that are working in your brain. Yes. And I know, I know people who swear they start getting ads for things that they've talked about, but they haven't actually looked up. Mm-hmm. They just start popping up as if Alexa or Siri is actually listening for product names and then pushing things at you. That, again, gets back to the paranoid process. But I've not experienced that myself personally. That's a, that's a, a paranoid process. I would think that it was much more likely, and that's just as sinister, um, that the algorithms were simply triangulating two or three different things. Yeah, and people who fit your profile who are also have similar interests and in saying, oh, and, well, this is probably a mm-hmm. thing you'd like. So I'm going to get ads for foam rollers. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know, um, I think how this, one of the big things that revealed all this had to do with uh, women who were getting uh, direct mail, old fashioned, old timey mail, direct mail uh, solicitations for pregnancy products who didn't know they were pregnant yet and were. <laughs> And that's what started to blow. Yeah, I, I have to go back and find the whole story, but that's okay, what kind of- I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> okay. But anyway, I'll, if I can find that story, I'll send it to you because it's, uh, it's a good one. I know you've always had a passion for, for physical education, and I think you point to a really, a really important thing, uh, and I think also about specialization. I see billboards for this all over my town, but it's the one sport injury because more and more in school oh this is a sport you're good at you're going to play it all year long Uh whereas we used to play a different sport in the spring a different sport in summer a different sport in fall so we were using our body in different ways as we were growing and adapting so we didn't form one thing dominant over the other except for those few outliers who went on to be pros but now everybody wants to be a pro or so it seems do work as you know in china and one of the reasons that I was eager to take that opportunity to go to China is, is that rehabilitation, athletic training, uh, the Olympics, and physical education in general are all under that Olympic committee. And they have a four-year cycle, and it really aims towards what are you good at, and you're going to be, you know, you're aiming in that. We, we don't have as rigidly organized a system as they do. It's like regional trials provincial one year and then provincial trials the next year and uh, mm-hmm. all china trials the third year and the fourth year is the olympics and they have that cycle for the winter olympics they have that cycle for the summer olympics and it's all incredibly organized we see a similar thing going on here of specialization where people have one thing that they do which means that the people who are genetically good at football will be picked for football um you know that that already have those tight sinews and the body type that will do it, but that people who don't look that type will never get any good at it at all. They are confined, mm-hmm. consigned to something else. I, that this is personal because I was that uh, kid who was awkward and mm-hmm. soon cons- consigned myself to the bench or the manager position or mm-hmm. um, ducking out entirely on the whole I thing. Can, I, I, I can remember my la- uh, it was the last game and that year in Little League, and uh, I asked the coach if I could play second base, and he looked at me and he said, son, do you want to win the game? And I said, well, of course I do. And he said, well, all right then. And I played right field. 
<laughs> we'd, we'd, we'd won two games and lost nine. There, there wasn't a big fail here if I made a mistake at second base, but it was, it was uh-huh. soul crushing. At the, at the time, it was soul crushing. So, so if, we, if we said every child needs a basic physical baseline that we want them to cross, if we did a kind of analysis of, okay, what are your genetic predispositions, which we'll know a whole lot more about. You, know, you may find this draconian or something, but I, I just think we can do both. We can find places where people will be good and we can find the deficits and build them up through certain forms of exercise. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the difference between what we call Vikings and temple dancers, but people with the tight sinews that, that might go for football, either kind of football, um, would tend to be the Vikings. And that would be true of the women on the women's soccer team as well. And that the in the yoga room are lots of people who are temple dancers who simply have a more uh, loosely put together fascial net. As far as we know now, that looks to be genetic and, and maybe is slightly affected by diet, but that you're, you're born with it. So if you're born with a really loose body, you might be really good at twisting yourself into the prestal shapes of yoga, but it might not be the best thing for you to do for your joints. Be easy with this. The football player needs stretching uh, to, mm-hmm. especially after the football career in order to lead a balanced life because uh, once you're done with that career, football is no longer required of you. But also the uh, the yoga person needs strengthening exercise. And if we started that from the get-go, from if we assess that as children, just part of going to school was tending to your physical self and your physical intelligence, then uh, we could add that to the building of emotional skills and, and um, you know intellectual skills. How's the program coming at the Waldorf School? They're doing some really amazing progressive and and innovative things and uh like so many things i have not caught up during the pandemic which is you remind me to do that the whole faculty is thinking about okay what is the relationship to the body and how does it get expressed through the day it's not just having the kids up and down it's it's a question of sharpening their perception of both proprioception and interoception that was something that i turned them on to what do i feel and how do i feel being questions that are answered by different nerve receptors in the in the body and then the other people that i know who have either had their children in halftime school or out of school and you know how they have taken to the various things two children i know are just so much happier being homeschooled and the parents are happier and they're not going back to school you know public school is not something that's (laughs) rooted deeply in history right this is an oh. industrial era well an agricultural late agricultural early industrial era thing public school mm-hmm. uh, and that's why we get out in the summer is because you were supposed to go help on the farm in the summer and then go back to school oh is that is that's the origin of summer vacations or that that's we the design school around the harvest <laughs> yes i did not know it that. wasn't it wasn't to give children an experience <laughs> of summer camp no <laughs> It was to, it was let to them put them to work. Labor to the field. <laughs> <laughs> well, so here's a question. Getting back to that, is if we're teaching young people, at least on the level that they're that they're capable of, of understanding the differences between proprioception and interoception, what do we feel? How do we feel? Where do we feel it? How how do we teach the modulation? And and um, let me contextualize this for a little bit mm-hmm. uh, because I've certainly seen this in some people that I've treated over the years and it's almost like they're and, and they tend to be in their 20s at this point but they're so 
they're so uniquely in touch with those two factors about their body that when it changes, uh, they don't know how to modulate the signal. It's like, whoa, that feels better. But now this feels worse over here. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Uh, or in a simpler context, it's like, well, I came in at an eight and now I'm a two. So you didn't do your job. And it's like, I, I, I think modulating your pain by six points in an hour is, uh, it's pretty good work for today. How about living with the two for a week and coming back? Now you can't say that and, and not be a jerk, uh, but you have to find a nice way to kind of introduce the fact that, that, that change, change is a continuum. Um, and that signals are a continuum and, and you have to learn to modulate and not catastrophize over, you know, every little P in the mattress. So how yes. do you teach that to children? How do we teach discernment? How very precious of them to um, be discerning between their proprioception and their interoception. Yes, I absolutely think we can get too cute for words. Uh, the... Montessori school generation, there was another thing that was not, I'm not picking on Montessori here. Um, it's okay. It was a general thing that went out across the schools of, of everybody should have their self-esteem built up. And so everybody gets a gold star for participation. And that is not, and uh, built into that is this culture of immediacy. Everybody gets an immediate gratification no matter what they're doing. I think that's an unfortunate thing for the nervous systems of the children because mm -hmm. you have to have eustress. There has to be stress for the body to develop or yourself to develop into maturity. And eustress is what happens when you have a challenge and you meet it. Um, yes, it's the marshmallow test. The marshmallow you know the test. Point. I don't know the marshmallow Okay, point. so there is a predictor of success later in life based on the marshmallow test. So the test is you have a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, an eight-year-old, and it's like you can have one marshmallow now, or you can wait 15 minutes and have two marshmallows. And they have found that those willing to wait for two marshmallows tend to be more successful than those who take the one marshmallow now. You know, delaying your gratification in order to maybe have a bigger prize as opposed to now. Yes. And I think that that builds, I'm, I'm going to talk metaphorically now, but I think I'm talking about something physiological that builds a bowl inside, a bowl of resources inside the person um, to uh, delay the gratification. Now, I come from a Puritan family and that was the gratification was so delayed <laughs> you're still waiting for it <laughs> well and a child who wins the race first time every time is inculcated into the culture of convenience and immediacy the child who uh, starts in not doing very well at this and ends up doing quite well in this has that sense of accomplishment that builds that bowl inside and unfortunately giving every child a gold star empties that bowl instead of filling it so a child and most parents recognize this and needs a real challenge that is hopefully meetable and sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't so we learn to live with disappointment as well as <laughs> not crowing in triumph but i i don't know i i keep setting myself challenges and that's how i stay uh interested in the world is, mm -hmm. is uh, to, to keep it's, setting it's, challenges it's important it's important i think you something you said over a decade ago um 
it still sticks with me. If you only play tennis with people who are as good as you, your game never gets any better. If you can't find those challenges, you, you got to manufacture them and not run away when they present themselves. Going back to early physical education, if you were designing a physical education program, where would you, let's say be in the early development, bleh, later to... Bleh, 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 let 17. me... Yeah. Let Hang me on save second. you. Save let, me. Save me. Let me save you from your question, David. I would start that with a about a six-hour insertion into the prenatal courses for parents. So that as a baby arrives in the world, the parents have been schooled as to how that baby is developing, is going to move. And it doesn't take I mean, this is moving. You've done it with me in class, the spiraling into alignment stuff of mm -hmm. teaching parents how their baby will learn to turn over, not because you're trying to make the baby turn over faster, but instead we just don't know how babies move. So we just pick them up and schloop them into the car seat or the next snowsuit or uh, into the playpen uh, or God help us into one of those Johnny jump up things that they hang in the doorway. And if we understood more about how the baby is going to move, you get to interact and play with the baby on a physical kinesthetic level during that first year. I am so glad I got this information before I had a child. It just enabled my physical interaction with my child so much more, with my daughter so much more than I would have beforehand. I would have been a clumsy male because... Uh, I had the best education money could buy, and I still didn't know how to handle a baby at 30 years old. If somebody hands me a baby, I go, oh, so cute, and look for a woman <laughs> to pass the baby off to, um, and I'm not mm -hmm. that person anymore. I'm so glad that I have this information, and I don't see this information out there. There's baby massage. That's great. Baby massage is wonderful and should be done as much as possible. This is different. This is how does the baby move and how do you handle the baby in such a way that enhances the movement and develops the movement rather than hinders it? So what would be a simple example of that for the listener since they can't see you? Sure. The first example that would come up in the class is the pregnant woman um, has I'm going to step back because you have a lot of body workers in this audience. So I'm going to step back mm -hmm. and say your body is set up so that it alternates between hinges, joints that only have one degree of freedom, nod your head yes, and joints that do rotation that have multiple degrees of freedom say no. Now, I, maybe you know this anatomy and maybe you don't, but the yes is happening between the head and the first cervical vertebra, the no is happening between the first cervical vertebra and the second cervical vertebra. So there's an alternation between a hinge and a rotation and a hinge and your waist is a rotation and your pelvis is a hinge and your hips are a rotation. Uh, so you alternate between this hinge and rotation through the body and the result is that effective body movements like a punch are spirals because that combines the angular single hinge-like movement with the rotational movement and that's how we get power, that's how we organize our movement. If you know that, and I can, you know, I just explained it. We don't have a visual to go through this, but I can show a father how the baby is going to turn over in a way that they get it in just a few minutes. And I do that 
between the parents uh, as they're in the prenatal class, right? They're, they don't have the baby yet. So they're mm -hmm. seeing, they work with each other because you can't, you can, that's the trouble <laughs> with a baby. You can just say you're going here because the baby's participation in the movement, especially an infant participation in the movement is very small. But uh, so to get to your example, when I was changing Misty's diapers, uh, when she was three months old or in there, I would put my finger on the side of her hip and then I would turn her to the side to undo the safety pin. This is back in the day um, on one side and then turn her over and do the safety pin on the other. And then her eyes started following. As soon as she felt the touch on the side, her eyes mm. started following. And I, but I was hip to that because I mm -hmm. had this information. So I didn't just turn her. I let her eyes go and that turned her neck and that turned her shoulder and that turned her back. And I'm not saying that that made her turn over earlier or, but I have the most marvelous sense. I hope you can hear the smile in my voice because we were doing it together. And she had that sense of participation from the very beginning that I bring this up because it's that sense of participation that is so crucial and why I want to go back to the very beginning of mm -hmm. how you learned movement in the first place. And that's from your parents mostly. Um, and that we could do a lot for the low grade medical things that doctors don't really want to deal with and that body workers have to deal with um, by having that kind of education start there and then movement education, movement assessments, benchmarks, whatever you want to call it, uh, so that the basic health is maintained through the period of time when the child themselves will just throw themselves down in front of a screen. Or uh, in my case, I was buried under the covers with books, right? Uh, mm -hmm. I like books more than screens, but that's because I'm old. And, uh, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm right there with you on that one. I, it's funny in the, in the opposite. I was talking earlier about um, <clears throat> people who want to think about what they feel to make sure it's okay. I also have the exact opposite experience because I have the opportunity to work with a small dance school. And about once a month, uh, I kind of go in and do a little what I now call a pop-up clinic and working with some of these young people. Um, I can remember just recently working with an 11 year old uh, who was having, you know, some, let's just call it hip discomfort, uh, quadriceps moving laterally. And uh, it seemed in the anatomy trains like, oh, this is deep frontline stuff. And getting in, in the, 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 the distortions in the pelvis were, were obvious, but again, you're 11, you're still growing. I'm not going to get too wrapped up in that, but it's, it's just a marker. And so I do the thing I do with an 11 year old, like I would with an adult is let's do one side and stand you up and ask what you feel. And so we did that and she stood up and I said, what do you feel? And she didn't hesitate. She said, relief. And this big smile came on her face. And I'm like, great. Do you want to do the other side? She's like, yes, absolutely. But because these kids are dancing all the time, they are very keyed into what they're feeling and where they're feeling it. They, they don't hesitate to tell you what they're feeling in a way that you can work with easily. They don't overthink it. Mm -hmm. And that gives me hope too. Well, there are fabulous uh, kids coming up that I, I have great hope for the world as well. I have great hope for the world in, in a lot of things. This was 
uh, a terrible pandemic in the United States. Um, history books may come to blame one person or another. The country as a whole was unprepared for this kind of thing. And I put it down to our dependence on convenience culture and that, that we were talking about what has the pandemic uh, accelerated. And I think it has accelerated our idea of, oh, we need a different social contract. <laughs> we have different ideas of what that social contract should be. But uh, getting back to the earlier thing, we're so far above the non-bar number of the people we need to care about. And as you say, the numbers of ones that we brush with both uh, in the world, well, up until the last year, we used to brush with lots of people in the world. And then on the, on the social sphere, which is every bit as real to the inner body, uh, to, to the nervous system as the outer world. Well, and related to that, I hear it more and more now. Everybody's expecting that there's going to be some kind of collective PTSD that arises uh, from everything we've been through in the last year and the, the last few miles we have to go to cross the finish line with this problem. Do you have any intuition about how that might manifest? Well, I think there's going to be a tremendous rush of contact. Um, we've danced around, but have not mentioned yet. And I, I'm, I'll come back to the to mm -hmm. the period afterwards. This sure um, is, is that the internet is an audiovisual medium. You cannot communicate kinesthetically across the internet. You can talk about kinesthesia. You can induce kinesthetic experiences with your voice, uh, but you cannot touch. Uh, there's no way I can assess your touch in Australia. This is kind of the thing that <laughs> I'm waiting for the internet to be able to do so I can <laughs> assess my students and teachers. Uh, you know, Online palpation. Yeah, well, there's already things like uh, remote surgical arms and, and uh, scopes mm -hmm. and things like that, but, but we have nothing. So that is part of the problem of today is that the internet came forth as an at first as an audio and then an audio visual medium and uh, you know when i say the internet i was saying first came radio and then came television and then came the internet um with, with just ubiquity of audio visual stimuli um but the kinesthetic is the one that is being ignored in that that's why my focus is on that um and we have, we as humans have a seemingly much greater capacity than even our hominid relatives, although they show the same tendency, um, to be able to ignore a set of some um, incoming signals. So if there's stimuli. a noise in your, your stimuli, if you're, if you're in a room with a steady noise or, you know, you work under a steady noise, you'll just not hear that noise that attenuates it goes away and you can hear conversations and things like that your brain adjusts to that kind of thing and unfortunately uh, we humans can do that with our bodies as well so you can sit there uh, i'll just use myself because i was driving <laughs> this, this is before the pandemic but i was driving doing a six-hour drive home i had just been telling all these people now on your drive home get out every half an hour and run around the car three times and get back in but do I do that? Do I take my own advice? No, I want no, to get home. You just want to get where you want to go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we're all infected with that kind of uh, thing now. And um, so, 
you were talking about the parking earlier, you know, people should park farther. I always recommend that people park well away from my practice uh, when they're coming to my bodywork practice so that they have the walk in and the walk back to the car as that kind of before and after thing. Yeah, I trick people. I trick people for that because I say, you know, if you just go up the block and turn right, there's two hours of free parking. (laughs) (laughs) So that often works. As as we did this, we got a lot off into the future and what's going to happen after the pandemic. I just wanted to complete that thought because I got derailed. Sure. Which is there will be this tremendous need for contact. I feel it now. I'm almost PTSD. If you say everybody's going to be PTSD, mm-hmm. I don't want to trivialize the word, but no, but, no, no. Uh, but but I definitely feel that abrasiveness. I, I want to sit in a room with people and play guitar and sing. I want to sit down over a meal and laugh out loud and not be worried about it. And um, so we're all feeling that that kind of abrase abrasion <laughs> in, in the inner mm-hmm. workings yeah um so people talk about burnout as being you know running out of fuel but uh, but it's lack of lubrication and yeah that's social important. yeah social, social lubrication is really important and i i am not i like my own company and uh, mm-hmm. as you know i sail a lot and, and often i'm alone um for hours at a time and, and enjoy it i can think of things to do and, and songs to sing. And uh, that is, that's not a problem, but boy, this lack of just being able to hug and mm-hmm. interact uh, jokingly with people in the world has. So I think there'll be a great big glomming together of people, families and, mm-hmm. and people coming to body work and coming to body work trainings and things like that we're preparing for. Uh, a, a large glob of people to come at us uh, for schooling. That's that's so great. That's great. I know a couple of weeks out now. Have you had your vaccination? I've had one, and okay, and it was the Moderna, so I have to wait for the second. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've been through both of those at this point, and uh, so far so good. Uh, there is an extra nose growing on the back of my neck, but uh, I'm learning to adapt. Yeah, uh, but we went out to a restaurant about two weeks ago for the first time in forever. And it was strange. It's uh-huh. like, I, you know, and it, uh, it's, it's a local Italian restaurant. We're very fond of it. And they, they've expanded their footprint uh, because they were successful. That happened to be happening at the same time that the pandemic and the shutdown happened. So everything is, is generously spaced. And, uh, and if you've been vaccinated and it's generously spaced, it feels very comfortable in that regard, but it felt very weird. Like I didn't know how to behave in a restaurant anymore or what yeah, I'm supposed okay. to do, or you're wearing a mask cause you're the waitress, but I'm not cause I'm eating. And it just was, it was a very different thing. I'm so I, sure I felt about it. Mm-hmm. So after that glom of everybody going back out and eating too much in restaurants and everything like that, just to kind of make up the debt. Uh, that we have on the social, then comes the really interesting time is do we take the lesson of this that we need to be prepared, that we need to have a different kind of social compact about uh, what it means to take care of each other and what, you know, how far are we willing to go with that whole thing? And I think we're beginning to have that discussion now um, in various, various ways, but it will really, 
social justice. I do. Here I go. I'm going to get go climate change here. I, I think the social change movement, the climate change movement, and, uh, you know, responsibility for the planet uh, and, and just being a clean animal um, ourselves and uh, responsibility for each other. Uh, it's going to blend together in, in uh, a, a new social compact. And I hope it doesn't go badly. Um, such times, when you look back in history, such times can result in a war. Um, and such times can result in great experiments. I think um, the American experiment starting 200 years ago was a really good one. But empires don't, you know, we, we've become the American empire and empires don't last forever. Um, and I think we do, I don't mean to be too apocalyptic of this, but we do see the same kinds of signs in this um, that we see at the decaying ends of, of lots of empires. And um, so if we can renew that promise, it would be great. Mm -hmm. I think we can still swing it around. And I think you and I are going to continue to be on the side of the experimenters, mm, which is yeah. a great place to be. I just can, I can imagine slowing down. I can't imagine never stopping. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. Well, I I know I just reached during the pandemic time the feeling of slowing down coming from within me, not that um, my body is doing what it's doing, which is slowly aging. Um, but I just felt, okay, I think I can hang up that particular set of spurs now and maybe this other set of spurs <laughs> and let the kids take over. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's an interesting feeling to feel coming from the inside because I've never had that. <laughs> and, uh, you you look like that. you're very comfortable with it, though, and that's the important thing. Oh, yeah. It's just it's part of the, the letting go process that, um, you know, I don't want to live forever. And uh, I'm, I am very, I just want to say, for those of you who are much younger than me, I'm very happy in my body at 72. I'm having um, all the, I'm having more experiences in my body now than, than I had when I was younger. It's uh, still a learning process and it's not a decrepitude, but there is aging. Aging does happen, but it's, it just presents its own set of uh, challenges to grace and <laughs> yeah no that's that's great aging is inevitable but becoming elderly is not yeah and certainly all the research is pointing to that it's uh you don't you don't get old and stop moving you stop moving and get old so well i i firmly expect to have you back on the program 20 years from now when you're 92 okay don't tell me how you've successfully hacked <laughs> your uh your later decades Tom, I, for I have I have this new body. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> it has, it has a bad Precision engineered. <laughs> yes. Tom, thanks for with me today. Great, David. It's always fun All to right. talk to you. Take All care. Bye-bye. Right. Thank you for listening to another episode of Body Talk. Any questions? Questions for me? Questions for our guest? Send me an email bodytalkdavid at gmail.com or you can use the Anchor app and send me a voice memo. How cool is that? I'm David Lasondak. Join me next week when we continue to explore your inner universe on Body Talk. <laughs>